In a quiet corner of the Somme battlefields, we walk from Contau Maison to Bazantin. We find memorials to lost officers and the story of men from Leicester who marched to war. More tales from the forgotten Somme. As season five of the Old Frontline podcast comes to an end, I thought we'd finish in a familiar landscape, the rolling downlands of the Somme, and walk that battlefield once more. We're going to look back over season five and talk about the next season in a little podcast extra that I'll put out next week. It struck me that really I should probably do that at the end of every season, have a chat about what we've discussed and some of the points and stories and information that you as listeners have then sent through through the website and through email and talk about what the plans are for the future. So this is the end of this season, but obviously not the end of the old front line. So more of that next week, but for now, where are we? We're on a road between the town of Albert and the village of Contalmaison. In fact, on a road that runs between La Boiselle and Contalmaison. And if we look behind us, back to the west, towards Albert and towards that village of La Boiselle, we're looking to the area where the Battle of the Somme began on the 1st of July 1916, in that beautiful summer's morning. A perfect summer's day, but as I soon called it, a sunlit picture of hell when on that 18 mile front the British army went over the top from Gomacore in the north to Montauban in the south and on most parts of the front that day there was little or no success just heavy losses more than 57,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers becoming casualties in a single day but despite those losses despite so few gains there were some areas where a foothold in the German line had been achieved, and at La Boiselle, the ground around the Lochnagar mine crater had been captured, and this enabled reinforcements to come up and the offensive there to continue. And gradually, over the course of the next few days, a subject that we've covered in some previous podcast episodes, that ground around La Boiselle, Sausage Valley, named after the sausage-shaped observation balloon to the south, that was taken... Mash Valley eventually to the north towards the neighbouring village of Ovalers, that was captured and the offensive moved forward. To the south between the villages of Mametz and Montabar, both of which had been captured on the first day of the Somme, the landscape was populated by woodland, that horseshoe of woods as Martin Middlebrook called it in one of his books. And one of those was Mametz Wood and in that first week of July 1916, Units got closer and closer to that area, eventually leading to the attack on Mamet's Wood by the men of the 38th Walsh Division, Lloyd George's army, that new army recruited across Wales of volunteers in 1914. And again, we've looked at that in some previous podcasts, but sandwiched between these two areas, the fighting around La Boiselle, the fighting around Mamet's, was the village of Contal Maison, sitting just below the high point of the Pozieres Ridge, the highest point on the 1916 battlefields. It had for nearly two years been a village behind the German lines, a billeting village for units in the front line positions around La Boiselle and around Fricourt. There was a chateau in the village which the Germans had used as a headquarters and most likely as medical facilities as well. It was slightly away from the range of the normal field artillery guns, although it had received some damage from heavier British and prior to that French artillery, most of the village was pretty intact. My guess as well is that there probably would have been some kind of German burial ground there as well. I think almost all of the villages behind their front on the Somme prior to the battle in 1916 had a small regimental burial ground of some description. Some of the villages, like Lassars further back, had even bigger cemeteries, but I think most of the villages had a burial ground where the men from a particular unit and the Germans tended to keep their soldiers in the same positions. And when we look at the order of battle of German units on the 1st of July 1916, many of them have been in those sectors for months and in some cases years. 
so it's quite logical that they would have a place to bury their dead. The village sits on the slopes, the lower slopes of that Pozier's ridge. Around it is the wooded area to the east, Mamet's Wood, to the northeast, the neighbouring village of Bazantin Le Petit and Bazantin Wood, which we're going to walk to in this podcast. And this was a place where the Germans, as well in the valleys that surround this village of Contalmaison, almost certainly would have had field artillery and heavy artillery units dug in here at different points, giving fire support to their troops in the front line. It had been an objective on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Units of the 34th Division, which attacked La Boiselle, were meant to advance up Sausage Valley into Contal Maison. Neighbouring units capture Poziers and the Poziers Ridge and push on even further. But on that first day of the Battle of the Somme, very few men, very few units got through the German lines. A handful of men from the Grimsby Chums, the 10th Lincolns, got partway up Sausage Valley and there's evidence that men from the 11th Suffolk's, the Cambridgeshire Battalion, also did the same. But soldiers of the 15th and 16th Royal Scots, which included the Macrae Battalion, the 16th, fought their way not just up the valley, but got into the edge of Contal Maison village, probably one of the furthest advances into German ground on this part of the battlefield. The survivors were cut off and surrounded and many were taken prisoner. And there is a memorial to them in Contal Maison. Now we've skirted round the fringes of this village in a previous walk and we're kind of doing the same in this one. And I haven't yet told the story of Macrae and the Macrae Battalion and the men of the 15th and 16th Royal Scots because it's such a good story that it deserves a podcast in its own right and we will return to that another day. But in terms of the fighting around Contal Maison in 1916, following the failure of the initial assault into this area, fighting didn't reach here again until a week into the battle, as La Boiselle was captured, Ovalers to the northwest was taken, and that fringe of the fighting around Mamets began to push the Germans back towards the wood. And then on the 10th of July, Two battalions of the Greenhowers, the Yorkshire Regiment, assaulted the village from a different angle from the south and southwest, and Contal Maison was captured. This then cleared the approaches to the slopes of the Poziers Ridge, enabling other units to move up and eventually the Australians to move into this area and use it as a leapfrog to get up to and into Poziers village. That would take place later in July of 1916. And across to the east in that area around Mehmet's Wood, it meant that Contal Maison, the capture of that, no longer meant that the Germans could fire into the flanks of any attack on the wood itself. So the second assault on Mamet's Wood by the Welsh Division took place the same day that Contal Maison village was taken and that saw Welsh troops fight their way from tree to tree, ride to ride, smash tree to smash tree as they pushed the Germans back and that ground was captured. Beyond it was the next phase of the Horseshoe of Woods, another village, Bazantin, and then beyond that, Bazantin Le Petit Wood, and on the rising ground towards the next bit of high ground, the next ridge was Highwood, aptly named because of its high position dominating that part of the battlefield. So what we see by connecting these villages up and the story and the chronology of the Battle of the Somme in 1916 is how they are all interconnected. We talk about the crisscross paths of the Great War and on the battlefield itself you see that these things aren't really in isolation, they're all part of the same story and one leads into another, and in terms of the story of 1916, it's important to understand how all these jigsaw pieces, as it were, fit together. By the time of the capture of Contal Maison by the Greenhowards, by the Yorkshire Regiment, the village was pretty heavily knocked about. It had come under terrific artillery fire from the British in that final assault, but it became an area taken over by the British where they used the cellars of the houses within the village, they used the ruins of the chateau as an aid post, field ambulances worked out of there receiving the wounded from the fighting in the neighbouring area, and those same valleys that had once hidden German guns were then used to place British and later Australian field artillery units to fire in support of the attacks heading up towards the Poziers Ridge and the surrounding area beyond to High Wood. Today, as we stand here on the outskirts of the village of Contal Maison, it's a village that 
like all of these Somme villages, was reborn in the 1920s with the reconstruction. There's been some new building here and there, but the 1920s buildings that replaced what had been here before the war are all still visible. The old school is now a house. Most of these villages have shrunk in terms of their population and very few of them have their own individual school anymore. But the old Picardy brick style of the 1920s is very prominent as you walk through this village. And almost immediately as we come into Contal Maison, just ahead of us on the left, we see a green Commonwealth Wargraves Commission sign indicating a cemetery, in this case, Contel Maison Chateau Cemetery. And we'll take the steps and follow the grass path and go into that burial ground which sits just behind the houses on the fringe of the northeastern part of the village. If you look in the field beyond it where the chateau was located, there is a few little bumps there which I think is the remains of the rubble of the, the building. It was never rebuilt, Contal Maison Chateau. Perhaps the owners, like the owners of Thiepval Chateau to the north, died off during the war or there was no desire to rebuild it. Who knows? But as we push the bronze gate open and come into this silent city of the Somme, we can see that it's a relatively small battlefield cemetery. There's 289 graves here. Of those, 220 are British, 21 are Australian, 3 are Canadian. There are 44 unidentified soldiers amongst them and one special memorial to a soldier known to be buried in the cemetery, but the exact location of his grave was lost. This was a burial ground utilised by the British following the capture of the village. As I mentioned, there could have been German burials here, and who knows, maybe the British buried their dead alongside the initial German burials that predated the Battle of the Somme. But the first British burials were made here on the 14th of July 1916, at the time of the night attack, or the dawn attack. That morning, the British army advanced from just beyond Contarmaison, across, around Mamet's Wood, into Bazentin, capturing the high ground of the neighbouring Bazentin Le Grand, pushing on towards Longueval, getting into Delville Wood and capturing the approaches to High Wood. And the first burials were made following that action. It was then used extensively by field ambulances who seemed to have used the cellars of the chateau, which may have been quite substantial, as a field ambulance, a dressing station location, and men being brought back from the fighting who died of their wounds, were buried in this cemetery. And casualties were brought in and, and died and were buried here from September 1916 right through to March 1917, which was the phase in which the Germans pulled back from the Somme in the retreats to the Hindenburg Line, or from the British perspective, the advance to the Hindenburg Line. There was fighting here again in 1918. The Germans broke through in March of that year when the old Somme battlefields were taken and fought over once more. This was then back behind German lines for some months until the ground was retaken in August of 1918 when the 38th Welsh Division, who'd fought just down the road in 1916 at Mamet's Wood, advanced from the Ancre River near Avalui Wood, crossed the Ancre and advanced straight across this part of the Somme sector. So the final burials were from August and September of 1918. Post-war, a small number of graves were moved in from the surrounding battlefields of the Somme and the Ancre Valley. I would guess that most of the unidentified burials that are in here are the remains of soldiers who were recovered post-war when the battlefields were searched. When we look at the burials that are in here, and there's a common thread between both the cemeteries that we visit on this walk. This was a burial ground used by the Australian Imperial Force, by Australian units, initially to bury some of their dead from the fighting around Poziers, but at the end, if we jump to the end of the Battle of the Somme, when the front line was beyond Fleurs, up towards the La Tronsloy Ridge, around Gurdacore, the Australian divisions held that sector during that cold winter of 1916-17, and used a number of cemeteries on the battlefields, the old battlefields behind them, to bury their dead, of which this was one. And it was also probably part of the evacuation route. If the dressing station remained in use in the chateau right up to March 1917, then logically casualties from that frontline area were being evacuated through here. 
So during that winter, which was that cold period when a lot of Australian soldiers had high instances of sickness through frontline service, trench fought as well because of the conditions, this was the route they were being taken back to get to Albert, beyond Albert, to the proper medical facilities there because this was a smashed landscape by then around Contel Maison, the village most likely reduced to rubble and the ground around it pulverised by shell fire, not a place that you wanted to be in that cold winter if you were sick or if you had trench fort, you needed to get further back to these casualty clearing stations and beyond that, the hospitals up towards the coast. So you see that reflected in some of the burials, men killed in Australian units in the day-to-day activities of trench warfare up in that frontline position. When you look up quite a few of the men that are buried in here, they're killed in places like Fleurs and Gerdecourt. The original cemetery register also says that 18 Germans and one French soldier were once buried here. The Germans may well have been some of those original graves that I mentioned. Those were all removed after the war to their respective cemeteries, or perhaps in the case of the Frenchmen, taken home. But something that I discovered through the acquisition of a photograph some time ago is that in 1940, the Germans buried some of their dead here again of a little tiny snapshot taken by a German soldier showing a small collection of graves around the area of the Cross of Sacrifice in this cemetery. Now there was fighting in quite a lot of the Somme villages in 1940s. The Germans advanced from Peron towards Albert and it seems there was some kind of skirmish in Contalmaison at that time. It sat at an important road junction coming from Peron, coming from Bapaume towards Albert on the back roads and maybe French or even British soldiers fought a small battle with the Germans here, and these were the casualties buried in field graves on the grass close to the dead of the Great War with wooden crosses with plaques on them indicating who they were. On this photograph I could see some of the names and trace those, and they're now buried in the German cemetery at Bourdon near Amiens, where the dead of the 1940 campaign that were once originally buried in this area around the Somme and the wider area around Amiens and the Somme were brought into for burial after the Second World War. And it seems that quite a few cemeteries in this area, British cemeteries, did have German dead buried in them, which today is not recorded in any of the registers and certainly would make an interesting research project. The grave that most people come here to see when they visit this cemetery at Contel Maison, and this is true of quite a few cemeteries on the battlefields of the Great War. There's a Victoria Cross recipient buried here. Some people go to the cemeteries to find these VC recipients and visit their graves. At the other end of the kind of extremity, they visit the graves of men who were shot at dawn. And I think if that's just what you do to go to cemeteries to visit VCs and men who were executed by a firing squad, kind of missing a wider picture there and it's always worth if you do that if that's your motivation pause and look along the rows of graves try to pick out patterns look for inscriptions see if there is a dominance of one unit and all of that none of it's an accident all of that will kind of help you understand the story of the cemetery that you're in but we too will stand at the grave of the Victoria Cross recipient that's here and that's Private William Henry Short He was in the 8th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment, the Green Howards. He died of wounds on the 7th of August 1916, aged 31. He was not killed in Contalmaison itself. He'd been in the fighting beyond that up towards the Poziers Ridge near Munster Alley Trench. It was a much fought over part of the Somme battlefield, particularly in August of 1916. His parents lived in Grangetown in Yorkshire. He was born in Eston, which was near Middlesbrough. And he'd volunteered at the beginning of the First World War in 1914. And following his training, he'd come overseas with the 8th Battalion in August of 1915 and had found himself as part of one of the bombing sections of his company. And these were men who were issued with hand grenades, Mills grenades, and earlier they'd have had some of the variations of grenades that the British Army were using in 1915 from jam tin bombs through to number one mark two grenades that looked more like a club than a a hand grenade but by the time of the Somme the Mills grenade was very much in use by bombing sections on the battlefield and his Victoria Cross was awarded for bravery in bombing his way up the German positions in that fighting around Munster Alley. But what 
motivates a lot of people to come and visit his grave is not just the fact that he was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross for his bravery in the fighting here in 1916, is that he was a, a popular local amateur footballer. And football really kind of weaves its way through the story of this village. William Henry Shorts, buried here in the cemetery on the far side of Contel Maison, was the original field grave of Donald Simpson Bell, who was also part of a bombing section, the officer that led it, and he got a Victoria Cross just down the road between Contel Maison and La Boisselle in the early phase of the Battle of the Somme, and then was killed leading his men into action on the 10th of July 1916, buried in what became known as Bell's Redoubt, and then his body moved to Gordon Dump Cemetery post-war. So that's two football connections, the amateur footballer Billy Shorts, buried here, the professional footballer Donald Simpson Bell, killed on the other side of the village, but before their stories came here to Contel Maison on that first day of the Somme, the McCrae's Battalion, the 16th Royal Scots, had 16 members of the Heart of Midlothian Football Club in it. So football is a really big part of the Great War story here at Contel Maison in 1916. But it's another grave in this cemetery that really draws me in every time I come here, and it's the grave of a Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Army Medical Corps, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Nimmo Walker. He commanded the 69th Field Ambulance, which almost certainly operated in the Chateau, which is at the back of where the cemetery is located today. And he was killed in action on the 24th of September 1916, age 42. Not a young soldier, a man who'd lived quite a long and eventful life. He'd fought in the Boer War, He'd been educated in London and Liverpool and he became a pioneering eye surgeon at St Paul's Eye Hospital in Liverpool before the Great War. He especially worked with working class children within the city. Liverpool was a city of contrasts, wealth and a lot of poverty as well and childhood illnesses and sickness including problems with eyesight and blindness plagued the working class population of that city and he was one of those who tried to find a way to do something about that. And he saved the site, it's recorded in the medical obituaries of him, that he saved the site of hundreds of Liverpool children in that Edwardian period before the Great War. And what I like is that this was a man who achieved so much in his life, a life sadly cut short, who knows what he would have gone on to do after the war. Maybe the treatment of soldiers with eye injuries from shrapnel and bullet wounds would have been part of his speciality as the war moved on and he'd have survived, but sadly that wasn't to be the case. But what I like as well is when you think about the work that he did and how he gave sight back to so many young children is the inscription on his grave which draws our attention to his work. And that inscription reads... He lived to give light. He lived to give light. What an amazing epitaph for an incredible man. And I'm always, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, drawn to these person inscriptions. They, they tell us so much, I think, about so many different aspects of the Great War. And I noticed the last time I was in this cemetery, my eyes were drawn to the grave of Gunnar Hudson of the 250th Brigade Royal Field Artillery, who died on the 22nd of October 1916, aged 24. The inscription that his parents chose on his grave reads as follows. The undone years, the cruelty of war. He'd come from Canada, from Scarborough Bluffs at Toronto, to serve in the British Army. And when you stand there and read that inscription, you can see that his parents were broken by their loss. So with thoughts of what may have been achieved by so many of the men who were buried here, we walk back down the grass path, down the steps and onto the road, walk up into that main junction at Contal Mason. Just across to our right is the McRae's Battalion Memorial, but we'll go round to our left, follow it out of the village to a point where it branches off to go direct to Bazantar, but we will go to the left where there's a water tower into a sunken lane where in the winter months you can see the evidence of dugouts in the banks of this sunken lane and we'll continue with our walk up towards the Poziers Ridge.
As we walk out of the sunken lane with Contel Maison behind us, the ground rises up onto the slopes of the Poziers Ridge, and we increasingly have a fantastic view across this part of the Somme battlefield, those vast open skies that we always associate with the Somme is certainly something that we get here. And to our right, our far right, we can see the treetops of Mamet's Wood. Beyond that, Bazentown Wood, which we're going to walk to. There's ahead of us, at the ends of this minor road, there's a farm on the right-hand side. And then to our left, we can see the elongated village of Poziers that sits on the crest of that ridge. Behind it is the Poziers windmill site, which used to be marked by a radio mast, which was taken down earlier this year. That kind of familiar modern marker on the landscape, where you always knew where the Poziers ridge and the windmill site was located, is now gone. And so that's kind of astonishing sometimes when you look in that direction, where's the radio mast? But the ridge obviously is still there, and the, the, the high point where the windmill was located is still there. And that was a a crucial bit of ground and what we're looking at as we walk up this track and look particularly towards Poziers and the windmill site is that much contested bit of ground following the capture of Poziers village. The Australians took that in a single day but the fighting beyond it was much more difficult and for them much more costly. The Australians suffered over 23,000 casualties in the fighting for Poziers, not just in the village, but in the ground we can see around us now, and then beyond up towards what were called the OG lines, the old German lines, two distinct trench lines that ran right across the crest of where the windmill site, the very crest of the Poziers ridge, and then to the north beyond that towards Steepval, Ferme de Mouquet, Mucky Farm, or Mucau Farm as it's sometimes called. All of that area was the hotly contested ground that cost those terrific Australian casualties in 1916, almost as many men as they'd lost at Gallipoli the previous year. But this is also a battlefield where British units fought on the fringes of the Australians. Munster Alley Trench ran through here. That's where Billy Short got his Victoria Cross for the bombing attack on the German positions. George Butterworth, the composer that we mentioned briefly in the previous episode about Great War music, he was here with the Durham Light Infantry, his men captured a trench which was named Butterworth Trench after him and then he was killed not far away just a short while later, buried on the battlefield, but his grave lost. Like so many who fought and dies in this part of the Somme, a very high proportion do not have a known grave. They are buried perhaps as unknowns in some of the cemeteries here or they're still buried on this landscape. This is a part of the Somme where I've seen in my own lifetime the recovery of soldiers' graves, soldiers' remains from these fields. And I think that during the battle, while many men were obviously buried like Butterworth in field graves or in impromptu graves in shell holes or bits of trench, the terrific artillery fire that swept through this vast open battlefield in 1916, which was seemingly, I would guess, to the men who were there then, even more open than it feels today, just destroyed everything on this landscape and the fighting that returned here in 1918 just about finished everything else off. So it's a miracle really that any of the cemeteries remain and any isolated graves remain come the end of the war. But in this area the pulverisation of the ground meant that anything on the surface was often destroyed which I think accounts for the high level of men killed on this battlefield. So many that I've researched here, their names are on Thiepval, there's no grave to see. And then as we look up to the crest of the ridge where the windmill site was, where the old radio mast once stood, that was the bit of ground where you see the transition between Australian soldiers fighting around Poziers and the British on their flanks, and then the moving in of the Canadian Corps, who then took over this sector in early September 1916, and from these positions would eventually go on to attack the village of Corselet beyond that Regina Trench, an area where tanks were used for the first time around Corselet. But even before that, the Canadians were battling here in that grounds between where we are now as we come up to the end of this road with the farm on our right and we look towards the crest of the Poziers Ridge at the windmill site. We're looking towards a bit of ground where the 2nd Canadian Infantry Battalion were fighting in September 1916 when they took a bit of the German line there and Leo Clark was awarded a Victoria Cross for his bravery 
an incredible action where his men went forward. He was an acting corporal. He led the men into the German positions. They were much more heavily defended than had been anticipated. And a ferocious battle took place there with grenades and weapons and even using their rifles as clubs to beat the Germans back until the position was gained. But Clark was the only man left standing. And for his bravery in securing that position, he was awarded a Victoria Cross. He went on to take part in the fighting at Corselet, was wounded there and died of his wounds on the Normandy coast, being buried in Etretay churchyard not far from Le Havre. But an interesting aside to his story is that he was one of three men from the same street in Canada that were awarded the Victoria Cross in the Great War. Pine Street in Winnipeg was renamed Valor Road after the Great War, in memory of Leo Clark, but also Robert Shankland, who'd been awarded the Victoria Cross at Passchendaele, and Frederick William Hall, who'd got his VC for bravery in the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915, all of them with CEF Canadian units. As we reach the road junction by the farm, we turn right here and we walk along the roads towards the next village, the village of Bazentin le Petit. And as we come into the outskirts of the village, just on the right-hand side, is a low brick wall with a curved feature to it, which is an original, now restored, but original wartime memorial to what is called the Nine Brave Men. And it commemorates nine sappers of the Royal Engineers who were killed with the 82nd Field Company between the 29th and the 31st of July 1916. Seven of the men named on the memorial have no known grave and are commemorated on the Thiepval Memorial, going back to what we were saying about graves being destroyed by shellfire. You can see just on this one memorial how that reflects it. And two have identified graves, not in the same cemetery, but buried in two separate cemeteries in the area. They were all killed between Bazentin and High Wood. And there's a very good article on the memorial on the western front association website and i'll put a link to that on the podcast website so you can go and check that out there's two really interesting quotes on there one is from the official history now it's quite unusual that a royal engineer unit gets a notes in the official history but there's a footnote in volume two covering the fighting in 1916 that says number three section of the 82nd field company re working under the 57th Brigade of the 19th Western Division, was engaged under fire in building strong points in front of Bazentin le Petit village during the night of the 29th, 30th of July. The infantry assisting the section was withdrawn to prepare for an attack the next day, but the sappers volunteered to go on with the work and did so until nine were killed and nearly all the others wounded. In the village there now stands a brick memorial to nine brave men. Further research in the journals of the Royal Engineers unearths a letter from Lieutenant Colonel Butterworth, who commanded the 82nd Field Company during the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And he wrote some further detail about the background to the story of these nine brave men and the memorial itself. Number three and four sections had to go up at dusk through the little village of Bazentin to wire in some tactical points gained during the day's fighting. They had two or three men hit on the way up and then for three or four hours they carried on their work under a hellish storm of HE and machine gun fire. The work was considered vitally necessary. Accordingly, Lieutenant Howlett carried on steadfastly with number four section and Company Sergeant Major Diamond with number three section till the work was through. Six were killed and 19 wounded out of 40. I added the names of three others who died with great heroism, sticking it in the same way on the previous night, thus making up the tale of the nine brave men. Choate was a first-rate carpenter and a most lovable man. Ellison, just a boy from a North Country workshop. Vernon, a fitter and a fine stalwart fellow. Butterworth later added, I had written to each of the next of kin of the nine men, adding that I marked the spot and would go back some day and put up a little stone to their memory. I had a block of granite engraved in the divisional workshop in November 1917. We then collected bricks from the ruins nearby and so constructed our small tribute of affection and respecting to the memory of our nine brave comrades. 
I first came across this memorial in one of the early editions of Rose Coombs before Endeavours Fade, that Bible to the Great War battlefields that we all used back then in those remarkable days before the internet. And when I visited this with my father on the first time I came to the Somme in 82, we walked out here and there was this crumbling little brick memorial overgrown, covered in weeds. Much of the Somme was neglected really in those days. This wasn't an official memorial. It wasn't maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Probably people within the village had looked after it to a degree, but in the early 80s it seemed that places like the Somme and this great story of the First World War had been somewhat forgotten. The memorials like this reflected that. It sat like that for quite a few years, but I'm pleased that both the villages of Bazantan and the Western Front Association were very active in getting this memorial restored. And I think Royal Engineers, serving Royal Engineers, came over to assist with this. And it remains a remarkable, in some ways, unique memorial that dates back to the war itself, commemorating men killed in a particular action, but not officers, not VC recipients, but ordinary sappers doing their job fighting on these battlefields alongside the infantry that they supported. So we'll take a little side road just past the memorial that takes us along the edge of Bazantan Wood and we'll walk along this track for a little way looking back over the ground in some respects that we've walked because we're now on a front line position that was captured on the 14th of July 1916. Bazantan Le Wood is one of those places on the Somme battlefields it's very easy to overlook. There's no memorial here, there's no statue, there's not even a plaque on one of the trees, but it was the scene on the 14th of July of a bitter fight involving an entire brigade of men from the same regiment, the Leicestershire Regiment, the Leicester Pals, the 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th Battalions of that regiment who'd been formed in Leicester in 1914, and this was their first big action. Advancing alongside the men of the Welsh Division who had captured the last remnants of Mamet's Wood to the south, the Leicester Brigade, with those four battalions in it, attacked at 3.25 in the morning. This was that dawn assault that day when, using the cover of darkness and creeping an early creeping barrage, the men moved forward and got into the German positions very quickly. It was a swift and successful assault and they'd reached the second line of German defences in the area here in the wood by 4am, so just over half an hour before they'd first gone into action. But it had been at some cost. A successful advance always cost casualties. In the 7th Battalion, for example, by the time this northern end of the wood facing towards the Poziers Ridge was taken, there were only two officers within the battalion left standing. The 8th Battalion then came up in support and the other battalions followed and the battle then took place over the course of the next couple of days. The 8th lost its commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Mignon, kills in the wood and those proud Leicester battalions beat off German attack after German attack on the wood who were obviously trying to recapture this ground and recapture the village of Bazantin itself. It was a costly battle, a successful one, because the ground held and this became the new front line where we're standing on this track was essentially the front line created after the capture of the wood by the Leicesters, but at great cost to those four battalions. The 6th and the 7th battalions lost well over 500 men, the 7th losing 553, and the 8th and the 9th lost over 400 casualties each. Now, when you think that most of these battalions, they weren't going into action with 1,100 officers and men. They kept, by this stage of the conflict, 10% back as a battle reserve before they went into action anyway, and the battalions were under strength. Probably they mustered seven or 800 men. So to lose over 500 casualties in a battalion of that size, this was not insignificant losses. And we've got a really good voice of this action of these battalions in the form of I.L. Reid's book of Those We Loved. It's a book that I've mentioned a few times on this podcast. Originally came out in the 1990s based on an account that he wrote much, much earlier that he illustrated himself and the book contains these illustrations. All of his papers are now in the little archive at the University of Leeds. Reid was originally from Eastbourne. He was a Sussex lad 
and he was on an apprenticeship in Leicester when the war broke out and he joined the Leicestershire Regiment, the Leicester Powers, and he fought with them until he was commissioned later in the war in the Royal Sussex Regiment and served with them in the Second Battle of the Marne and the final offensive up in Flanders. So it's a really interesting book of those we loved, highly recommended memoir, well written, loads of brilliant accounts and something you can take with you to the battlefields and find the places that he discusses and link that story to the ground as it is today. And this is a little extract from the book. I remember reading it for the first time and being moved by his words where he reflects on the casualties as they're coming out of action and they realise the losses. They're going out and they're being dished out with their rations and the gaps in the ranks of the men who are queuing up to get their food. It's obvious how many men they've lost. And this is what he says. We watched a fatigue party bringing up our rations, dumping piles of bulging sandbags on the ground near us, and this set us running through the names of our mates we knew already to be killed, wounded or missing. All of us had lost our best pals, and we sat there with leaden hearts lost in our thoughts. Eventually Jackie broke the silence. Plenty of rations tonight, Dick nodding towards the pile. Enough for the whole battalion, eh? About six times too many, he added, bitterly. Christ, there'll be hell to pay in Leicester, and Loughborough, and Colville, and Melton, and Uppingham, when they know about this. The Leicester Brigade, bloody well wiped out, and he trailed off into silence again, immersed in his thoughts. After coming out of the line, Reed wrote, at length, at dusk on the fourth day, the survivors of the Leicester Brigade trooped wearily down through Mamet's Wood and back to a fairly sheltered spot near Freecourt, where we bivouacked, only too glad to be on the way out. I remember seeing our brigadier, Hesse, dirty and bedraggled as the rest of us, walking slowly down the light railway track with the aid of a long stick, head bowed like a weary old shepherd. Our acting C and B Company commanders, the one a boyish figure of a subaltern, no older than ourselves who had taken over the company in the heat of the action from his wounded captain and who had aged ten years in the last four days. The other, Captain Beardsley, martial yet though dirty and unkempt, his left hand bandaged, he'd gone into action with his sword and now it was sheathed at his side, but he strode proudly at the head of his remnant a pitiful few who followed him like faithful dogs. Such are my recollections of Mamet's Wood and Basentan le Petit, where so many of the Leicestershire's finest sons fell, the last resting place of my good friends Phillips, Lineker and Smith. So far as I know, no trace of the two latter has ever been found. Horace Phillips was buried on the corner of Mamet's Wood and the spot marked, but no trace of his grave remains. His name appears among the missing on the Thiepval Memorial. We marched off at dusk and left the Somme with very mixed feelings of sorrow at the thought of those we had left behind and of individual relief at being out of it, if only for a time. There's a much longer description of that action in Reed's book and of those we loved really is one of those classic accounts of the Great War and one that I think every Great War library needs to have on its shelves and I'll put a link to the modern edition of it onto the podcast's website. As he mentions, with one of his own mates being buried and then his grave lost, most of the men of the Leicestershire Brigade who were killed in the fighting here at Bazantan Wood, they do not have a known grave. The wood, like all of these Somme woods, still holds its secrets and is still the grave of many of those men who fell here in July of 1916. And we'll leave the ghosts of Bazentan Wood behind us now and walk back into the village. We've been to the village of Bazentan Le Petit in a previous podcast. There are two Bazentans, Bazentan Le Petit and Bazentan Le Grand. Small and big Bazentan, although small Bazentan is bigger than big Bazentan. Maybe that's a French joke. But we're not going to go right into the village itself. Instead, we'll take a grass path off to our right that'll take us through some houses to a military cemetery. 
tucked at the back of this part of the village up against the trees of Bazantin Wood. This is Bazantin Le Petit Military Cemetery. It's another battlefield wartime cemetery started in late July 1916 and used for battlefield burials, frontline burials in this area and then subsequent casualties right up until May of 1917. It's another small one, there's only 182 burials here, 103 British, 55 Australian, 9 South African and 15 of them are unidentified. It links us to the burials in Contel Maison Chateau Cemetery because this is another burial ground used by the Australian Imperial Force, by Australian units who held the front line up on that eastern part of the Somme battlefield during that cold winter of 1916-17. And there are quite a lot of 1st Australian Division men in particular in this cemetery. They were a division that were up there for a very long period during that time and these were not men killed in great battles of the First World War. This was just trying to exist in those shallow trenches in that open landscape, in that cold, freezing landscape of that winter of 1916-17. And the war went on regardless. Shells came over, rifle grenades, trench mortars, and men were killed every single day. Battalions were in the line there. And this cemetery, rather than bury them right up on that vast exposed landscape where probably the chances of their graves being destroyed were very high, the units brought their dead back for burial in places like this. So we see that reflected in those Australian burials in this cemetery, which make up a good proportion of the dead here. And we're drawn to one of the graves of the diggers buried here as we come into this cemetery because alongside his Commonwealth War Graves headstone, is the original headstone that was placed on his grave during the Great War, a very different design. They sit side by side, and I'll put a picture of that on the podcast website so you can see what it looks like. One of the handful of original graves that survive in the cemeteries after the war with uniformity in death, these original markers were meant to be removed, and most of them were, but some survive. Why this one survives and others do not, is often difficult to explain but here we've got a good example of it and this is the grave of Captain Harold Oscar Teague. He was the regimental medical officer of the 11th Battalion Australian Imperial Force and he died on the 14th of February 1917 aged 39. He was born in Bendigo and he was a doctor before the war and he enlisted in the Australian Imperial Force in May 1915 and originally served in the number three Australian General Hospital, receiving casualties coming back from Gallipoli. He was then posted as an RMO, a regimental medical officer, to the 11th Battalion, which was an original 1st Australian Division Battalion that had served at Gallipoli, gone right through the Somme battles in 1916, and then in that cold winter that ended the Battle of the Somme, they were up on that front-line position around Fleurs and Gurdicourt, and that's where he was killed. There's a, an account of his death in some of the papers that survived for him. The Australian War Memorial site has a host of information about Australian casualties of the First World War. It's very easy to research them with service records and all kinds of other information. And the account that online that we have for him reads that he was killed by shell fire near the front line where he had gone to attend to the comfort and welfare of the men. He was awarded a posthumous mention in dispatches for his bravery during his time as a medical officer with the 11th. Highly thought of by the men whose medical officer he was, they placed this original memorial here. So we're looking at a monument placed on his grave by his fellow diggers, by his comrades who served alongside him. So it adds, I think, a whole level of poignancy, really, when we stand here and think about that. The medical officer in an infantry battalion was such an important figure. He was there to make sure, particularly during those cold conditions, that the men didn't have any greater instance of sickness than they needed to have, that he looked after the welfare of them in the front line. This was a time in which the whole issue of trench foot of men's feet rotting inside their boots was a major problem, so he would have been faced with that on a regular basis. And when you read some of the more cynical accounts of the Great War, they talk about medical officers who just dished out number nine pills. These were the kind of cure-all pill that medical officers dished out, which was probably a laxative. 
that it was said was dished out to malingerers who just turned up at the aid post expecting to be excused duties because they had a sore finger or sore foot or whatever it was. But there was those cynical accounts and then we read the accounts of men like Teague who were worshipped by the men in his battalions because they knew that their lives depended on men like him. And we think of Shavas, we know so much about him as a medical officer, tirelessly going out to seek and recover the wounded. And he was the most famous of them all with a Victoria Cross and Bar, but right across the Western Front in these British and Commonwealth units, medical officer after medical officer was out there doing their job and often paying for it with their lives. The cemeteries that we visit on the battlefields of the Great War there are so many medical officers buried there and so many brave and incredible stories behind them. Leaving the cemetery, we'll go back down the grass path to the road. If we went off to our right down towards Bazantan Church, thinking of the fact that at Bazantan Wood itself there is no memorial, there is now, um, only put up in the last few years, a little memorial plaque to the men of the Leicesters with their cap badge on it, the Hindustan Tiger. And that is the only thing here that commemorates the loss of all those men in those four battalions of the Leicestershire Pals. We've looked at the rest of the story of Bazantan Le Petit, particularly involving characters like Robert Graves in a previous podcast. And you can go back through the podcast catalogue to find that. But we're not going to turn right to go into that part of the village. We're going to go left, back towards the Nine Brave Men Memorial to the road junction there. The road ahead of us would take us into Martin Puy, to our left back towards where we were earlier but we're going to turn right and go along this northern part of Bazantan village to a large clump of trees that we can see on the right hand side where there's clearly amongst those trees quite a substantial wooden calvary. Now many French villages have these they often mark the kind of entrances and exits to the village but this is not a French memorial it's a British memorial a private memorial to an individual killed in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. This is the memorial to Captain Houston Stuart Hamilton Wallace, the Wallace Memorial. Now this, as I say, is a big wooden cross on a base with a cover on the top of it, and for many years it was thought lost. Only the base of it remained, and the lead lettering that had been on that base had peeled off, and it wasn't entirely clear who the memorial was to. There was no mention of this memorial in the early editions of Rose Coombs, the book that I mentioned before, Endeavours Fade, the kind of Bible to the Western Front. But in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, the Western Front Association did a project where they began to record the private memorials on the Western Front. Richard Dunning, I think, was the one who started it off, and then a chap called Barry Thorpe then took it over and he became the memorials officer, as it were, of the Western Front Association and set out trying to find these. The Wargraves Commission had a list of some known memorials and when I was living at Corselet, Barry Thorpe asked me to go out and see if I could find some of the more difficult ones and this was one of them. It wasn't clear what had happened to this memorial. There was a record that it might have been struck by lightning and the cross lost. The base of it remains what else was there so I went to the village made some inquiries and I was directed to a local carpenter and went and knocked on his door and explained what I was looking for I understood that he had some knowledge of it and he went follow me we went round into his garage he lifted the door of his garage up and there propped up at the back of the garage beautifully cleaned and preserved was the cross the memorial to Captain Wallace and it had come down, just as had been written in the notes by the Wargraves Commission, it had come down in a thunderstorm, it had been hit by lightning and had been chopped off basically at the base and had fallen into the weeds and he'd driven past it a few times and being a, a carpenter, someone who loved wood, he couldn't bear to see this beautiful wooden carving rot in the weeds so he picked it up, took it back to his workshop, cleaned it up and put it at the back of his storeroom until the day that someone came to claim it and that day had come. So the Western Front Association worked with him and the mayor of Bazantan, the people of Bazantan and the Wallace Memorial was restored. And when we come here today, we can see it on its base once more, the lettering restored and it's clear who this memorial is to. Although the last time I was here, given that we've had these difficult COVID years 
it looks like the memorial could do with a little bit of a clean-up and hopefully that'll happen in the near future. But who was Captain Wallace? Houston Wallace was born in June 1892 and he was educated at Fetts College and Merton College, Oxford, which he went up to in 1912. Two years later, the Great War broke out and with a private education and a university education, he'd been a member of the Officer Training Corps, so he was commissioned pretty early on as a second lieutenant in the Worcestershire Regiment in October of 1914. After training and joining the 10th Battalion of the Worcesters, he was posted to France in July 1915. They were part of the 19th Western Division and he was in action with them in the capture of La Boiselle village, where following the losses within the battalion, he was promoted to command D Company. He was subsequently killed commanding that company in the fighting between Bazentan and High Wood at a place called Intermediate Trench on the 22nd of July 1916. Now his parents had died before the war, so he had no parents for that fateful telegram to be sent to, but his sister was listed as his next of kin, and she was the one that set about trying to find out what had happened to him. The commanding officer of the 10th Worcesters told her that he'd been buried at a calvary on the edge of the village, and it seems she visited the ground in 1921, the grave was lost, there was no trace of his burial site, and she decided instead that she would use some of her money to memorialise her brother and place a monument at a suitable site, create her own Calvary, her own memorial to him, and that's how this memorial came into being. And it wasn't a unique story. We have mentioned private memorials on the Western Front quite a few times in the podcast right across this landscape of the old battlefields from Flanders right down to the Somme and indeed beyond. Families came here in the post-war period seeking graves. Sometimes men like Captain Wallace had been noted as being buried, but when they came here after the war, the fighting had destroyed those graves, the later fighting, and there was no trace of their burial site. And so rather than wait for the government to do something about it, because at this stage there was no indication what would happen how the men who were missing would be commemorated so families that had money like the Wallace family took it into their own hands and they placed memorials to these men so when we find these private memorials they're almost all to officers families with wealth and privilege and connections behind them could fund could seek out land could purchase land and then get memorials built And most of them did not think about the future. They just thought their desire, understandably, was to commemorate that man, build a memorial to him. They didn't think about what might happen decades later, or as we are now, more than a century away from those losses. Most of these private memorials went up about this kind of time a century ago, in the early 1920s. So some of them provided money on behalf of what was then the Imperial War Graves Commission to maintain them. Many did not, and quite a few of them fell into such disarray that they completely disappeared, and others to this day are still in a fairly poor state, although the Western Front Association and indeed other organisations and localities on the battlefields have worked tirelessly to try and preserve some of these memorials, but not all of them. It's still a work in progress. And I think it's an interesting kind of reflection as to how you memorialise people because almost all of these memorials are to men who did not have a known grave. They were missing, their graves had been lost or their bodies had never been found at the time of the fighting. How do you commemorate someone who was missing? Many did it at home on family graves in local cemeteries or on war memorials or plaques on the walls of churches or other public buildings. But others who travelled to the actual ground where the fighting had occurred they then sought out a way and a means to memorialise that loved one that they had lost there. Obviously not everybody could afford to do that or had the connections or ability to place a private memorial. But it shows what really would have happened, I think, if the government had not funded the Imperial War Graves Commission and not decided to pay for the commemoration of the dead, then right across these cemeteries, right across these battlefields, there would be these isolated private monuments and the ordinary soldiers would have nothing. The whole sense of uniformity in death 
and commemorating everyone is what ensured that the, the men of this generation who fell in the Great War were properly remembered. Continuing along this minor road that links the village of Bazantin with the next road from Martempuy passing High Wood, we don't walk that far and ahead of us we can see, increasingly see High Wood emerging on the landscape, the high ground of that part of the Somme battlefields, aptly named as we've said High Wood. And that bit of ground, absolute carnage in 1916 with two months of fighting and every kind of warfare from infantry assaults, a cavalry charge, flamethrowers, tunnelling under one corner of High Wood, aircraft in the sky strafing and bombing, and then eventually tanks in the final capture of the wood on the 15th of September 1916. It, it kind of was like a wheel that spanned through the middle of the Battle of the Somme and reflected so much of how the battle and the army and the fighting changed during that period. But it is a bit of ground that we've looked at before. We're going to stop a little bit further up as the road kinks slightly as it heads towards the area of the wood. And in the fields around us was a trench called Intermediate Trench. It's not one of the famous trenches of the Somme battlefield like Regina Trench or the Switch Line, but it's an important part of this corner, perhaps one of those forgotten corners of the Somme battlefield. It was a German defensive line north of Bazantan village towards the neighbouring village of Martinpuy, where as the fighting around Poziers, Munster Alley and the positions near to the Poziers windmill site took place, this guarded the way from the Germans' perspective to the British moving into the neighbouring village of Martinpuy itself. So it was hotly contested ground. It also guarded the approaches to the grounds around High Wood as well. So in that July and August period of 1916, unit after unit came into the line here and unit after unit fought often costly battles for this tiny piece of ground around Intermediate Trench. And at one stage, both the British and the Germans were sharing the trench with the British one side of a bomb block and the Germans on the other. So close were their forward, their front line positions. And again, over the years when I've looked at units and the stories of individual soldiers who have fallen here, a very, very high proportion do not have a known grave. Another part of the battlefield swept with shell fire, perhaps failed attacks where bodies lay out in no man's land and were unrecoverable and were destroyed by subsequent bombardments. So very few of the men who died in this battle for what now, more than a century later, seems an insignificant part of Somme's story, but yet at the time was so vital in pushing the line forward here. Most of them, their names are listed on those seemingly endless panels of the Thiepval Memorial. And I think that when you come to corners of the forgotten Somme like this, again, like Bazantan Wood, there is no memorial here at Intermediate Trench, nor should there be. You don't have to memorialise everything. The landscape is its own memorial. The landscape, that last witness of the Great War, still tells its story. And when we walk this ground here at a casual basis, just by walking off the road into the fields during the ploughing season, you'll find cartridges and shrapnel balls and who knows what else. Obviously the live ordnance leave well alone, but the detritus of war, the reminders of conflict are still visible. And I'm sure if there was archaeology of this, that a lot more would be found. And I think that is really why it is so important to come to these places, to walk these battlefields, connect with this incredible landscape where the past quite vividly meets with the present and we can find echoes of that past in quiet corners, Calvary, memorials, the ghosts amongst the trees at Bazanta. There's so much for us to find here, so much for us to connect with and so much that these places give us as we walk and we think and we remember and we connect to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line 
with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at SOMCOR. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>